Georgia Case Law Podcast. Ryan Locke, show them how we break it down like that. For the lawyers, come and tune in right away. I know that you may not have time to read every case for the latest criminal defense and personal injuries from appellate courts. Oh, yeah, this is what you need every week. All my lawyers, where you at? This is Georgia Case Law Podcast. Let's go. Ryan Locke. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Georgia Case Law Podcast. My name is Ryan Locke. I represent people who have been injured and people who have been unfairly convicted from my office right here in Atlanta, Georgia. And in this podcast, I cover last week's decisions by the Georgia appellate courts. So let's start with our criminal cases. And this is a great one, Williams versus State. It's A18A0279. And this case has a, a up and down procedural history. So it was in the Court of Appeals. It went up to the Supreme Court after they granted cert. And then it got remanded back to the Court of Appeals to consider two ineffective assistance of counsel claims that they didn't address before. Here are the facts of the case. It's a fairly standard child molestation case. In 2013, the four-year-old child told her mother that her grandfather, Williams, was touching her. And Williams admitted to the touching in an email, but claimed that the victim initiated it. They did a forensic interview, and Williams, after trial, was convicted on uh, two counts of child molestation, one count of aggravated sexual battery. The, The issues in the case when it came back to the Court of Appeals concerned the forensic interview. The first was that the defense argued that trial counsel was ineffective for failing to call an expert to rebut the forensic interview. And the this this was a loser. Now, we all know, maybe we don't, but the ineffective assistance of counsel standard comes up every day in our appellate courts. And so to allege that a that your attorney was ineffective you have to show both that the attorney was deficient in their performance and that their performance um, was prejudicial, the deficiency was prejudicial, that there's a, a reasonable probability that but for the error, the jury result would have been different. That's very similar to the harmless error test that applies to nearly every error that uh, people raise except for structural errors. So. Here, the problem is that trial counsel actually did hire a forensic psychologist to review the tape, the forensic interview tape, but that psychologist said, hey, this interview is one of the better interviews that he'd seen. And so the way they lost this issue was the Court of Appeals said, look, if counsel makes a strategic decision in defending the case, then you can't, just because that strategic decision did not work out, you can't say that it was deficient. And we won't find, you know, and the Court of Appeals won't find that it was deficient. Now, at the motion for new trial hearing, trial counsel did testify that he would have called the psychologist had he known that the evidence would not have definitively shown penetration. And here's where reasonable trial decisions uh, really hit the where the rubber hits the road. Even if trial counsel comes in and says, hey, look, I agree that I was deficient. 
that does not necessarily mean that the appellate court's going to find that the the trial counsel was deficient because you can't consider the decision with the benefit of hindsight. And particularly in this case, court of appeals said, hey, look, it's for the jury to consider contradictions. And this contradiction was brought up to the jury. And so they were able to consider it. And so this was a strategic decision and not an error. Their second prong, they argued that, hey, trial counsel failed to request a jury card, a jury charge on the lesser included offense for the aggravated sexual battery count. And here, um, uh, the Court of Appeals said that the trial counsel's decision to pursue an acquittal on the charge rather than give the jury the option of convicting the client on the lesser included offense was a reasonable strategy. And trial counsel was aware of this kind of vague evidence of penetration, but he believed that there was enough reasonable doubt to sway the jury. And counsel also objected to any jury instruction that told the jury that even slight penetration was sufficient. And so the here, the, the Court of Appeals said, look, the even if trial counsel should you know even if they say look he shouldn't have he shouldn't have asked for this lesser included charge because they had already taken this reasonable doubt road but even if they did they wouldn't find any error because it was a strategic decision and even if they were to find that it was deficient they can't really show how he was prejudiced when you're arguing this kind of issue where you're saying, look, they sh- the they should have asked for a lesser included jury instruction. You have to be able to explain to the appellate court exactly what evidence would satisfy that lesser included jury instruction, and point to testimony in the record and evidence in the record at the trial level to say, hey, look, this is the stuff that would have authorized that would authorize this this jury instruction. What can we learn from Williams versus the state? If you have an expert and the expert's not going to testify in a good way for you, it's not ineffective to not call him. And if you're going to ask for a lesser included offense, it has to make sense in terms of your trial strategy. And you're not going to be able to get a conviction reversed if it doesn't make sense in terms of strategy, like here, where they went for the straight not guilty instead of trying to go for a lesser included. It's very difficult to float these alternative theories, or at least to say that it was ineffective for not straddling the line and for just picking one defense and going full-throated into it. So that was state versus land. Or I'm sorry, that was um, Williams versus the state. Next case is Massengill versus the state. This is a court appeals case, A20A, 2077 decided January 8th, 2021. And this is a uh, a high-speed chase case, but really it's a sentencing case. And this case is about really, you know, the plain meaning of a statute and looking at the statute to determine what sentence is authorized and what's not. And um, the statute that we're talking about is OCGA 46395B, 5B, lowercase b, 5, uppercase b. And 
here's what this here's what this statute says. It's for uh, fleeing with a speed of more than 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. And the statute says, when you're found guilty of this, the trial court can impose a fine of $5,000 and or impose a sentence of imprisonment for not less than one year, nor more than five years. But a sentence of imprisonment under this subsection cannot be suspended, probated, deferred, or withheld. And in this case, it's, it was essentially a police chase where the defendant reached speeds of over 90 miles an hour when he was trying to escape the cops. And that was more than 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Here, the trial court sentenced him to a, it was a, I think he sentenced him to, let me look, it was for the fleeing five years, the first two in confinement, remainder on probation. Failure to stop, 12 months probation consecutive to that count. Reckless driving, 12 months probation consecutive to count two. And so anyway, he essentially got three years in confinement with the remainder on probation. And the problem with this fleeing with the speed of more than 20 miles per hour the speed limit is if you're going to prison, then you cannot suspend, probate, defer, or withhold any amount of the sentence. So essentially, there's no split sentences. A split sentence is when you are sentenced to some amount of confinement and then the remainder on probation for whatever term of years is authorized under the statutes. Here, they say the, the statute says, the plain language of the statute says, you're not allowed to issue a split sentence. If you send them to prison, then you can send them to prison for some amount of time, but you can't follow it with probation. But... Here, the trial court sentenced him to five years with the first two in confinement and the remainder on probation. Obviously, that sentence violates the statute, and so uh, the case was remanded for resentencing in accordance with the law. So you know, this is a great case because what defense counsel did was looked at the statute for sentencing and figured out, hey, look, the plain language does not authorize this. Appealed it and won. You know, this is why it's a good example to always read the original language. Uh, this is a great tip for trial lawyers. You know, look at the original language of the statute every time. At the beginning of the case, when you're looking at an indictment, um, and you know, an incredible Atlanta criminal defense attorney, David Wolf, would always, whenever I went to him with an indictment, he would always pull out the law book, open it up to that code section, and read that code section from the law book, whether it was a statute we'd seen a hundred times or a statute that we hadn't seen before. And so that really trained me to go and look at the actual language of the statute every time you're encountering a statute. And sometimes you read it, like in this case, you look at it and you say, hey, maybe I'm crazy, but it, this seems to not authorize what happened. And hey, sometimes you can be right like the defense here in Massengill versus the state. Our next case is Poteet versus the state. It's A20A1728 out of the Court of Appeals. And this is a really exciting case because it is a confidential informant drug by case where the conviction was reversed. So let's see how they did that. So in this case, the confidential informant made a controlled buy of meth from Douglas Caffey. And police later searched Kathy's home, and the defendant, Poteet, was there. And while they were searching the home, 
they found a glass pipe that tested positive for meth, and the pipe had a red tint that looked like lipstick residue. They asked Poteet if she would pass a drug test. She said she didn't know, and she also told him that she used meth three days earlier. But there was no evidence on the pipe to connect it to Poteet. There was no evidence to suggest that the pipe was tested for fingerprints or DNA, and they did not test the red tint to be able to say it was lipstick. The best they could do is to say it was consistent with lipstick. So Poteet was convicted of possession of methamphetamine because of the pipe, and she argued on appeal that there was insufficient evidence to support her conviction. And she said that she that the evidence against her was entirely circumstantial, and there was no evidence to connect her to the pipe. Now, when the evidence against you is entirely circumstantial, the state has a duty to disprove every other reasonable hypothesis of guilt. And here, there, there were many other reasonable hypotheses of guilt. For example, that this wasn't her house. And so the pipe could belong to Douglas Cathy, who actually owned the house, or anyone else who came in and out of the house. They couldn't say that the lipstick on the pipe was hers. And the court says the mere presence of a pipe with lipstick on it in the vicinity of a female does not constitute direct evidence of possession by that female. There is also no evidence to indicate when the pipe was last smoked. And as I said, there was no fingerprints or DNA or any type of forensic evidence to show that it belonged to Poteet. So really, hey, she was there. They found a, a, a meth pipe near her. She admitted to smoking meth a while ago, and that was pretty much it. And the Court of Appeals held that there's no direct evidence. There's not enough circumstantial evidence, and they did not disprove all other reasonable hypotheses of guilt. And so then they reversed. I think this is a great case for being able to use, look at a case and use that, really think, hey, this is an argument that the jury didn't buy. This is an argument that the judge didn't buy at the motion for a new trial, but it had legs and it eventually won the day in the court of appeals. So that's, that's a great use of recognizing a, when you have a good insufficient evidence argument, which, you know, typically you don't, but when you have a good one, then you should really run with it. They raised other errors, but the court didn't reach them because they reversed on this issue. So that was Poteet versus the state. All right. Our next case is Flanders versus the state. And this is really a Dos Santos versus state issue. In this case, Flanders, Flanders was indicted for aggravated assault and two counts of cruelty to children in the first degree. She entered an Alford plea to all of the charges and then later filed a motion to withdraw her guilty plea. And when she withdrew, when she filed the the motion to withdraw the guilty plea, the the motion was timely. So you have to file a motion for a guilty plea in the term, 
at which the guilty plea was entered. Here, the issue is Flanders timely filed that motion, but then amended it afterwards to include a Brady claim. She alleged that the state had violated its Brady obligations because they had failed to disclose the existence of a, a, tape interviewed, a taped interview with the victim where the victim said uh, Flanders did not injure her. So that's obviously, you know, obviously very clear Brady material. And you know, it, it makes sense that Flanders want to withdraw a guilty plea because that, the existence of that tape could change the entire scope of the defense and the viability of the defense. So why this is really a Dos Santos issue is because, remember, Dos Santos versus the state was the 2019 Supreme Court case that said, hey, look, the when you file a motion to withdraw a guilty plea, it's only important that the motion is filed during that term of court, but it can be it can actually be heard beyond that term of court. And so once you make that motion, making the motion during the term extends the power to modify the sentence beyond that term of court until the case, until that motion is disposed. And the this common law rule that courts have the inherent power to modify a judgment within the terms of court also permits the court to uh, uh, not be limited to the movement's claims. They can, the trial court can revise, correct, revoke, modify, vacate the judgment, whatever. And so long as a motion is properly filed within the term, then their power to do all that extends beyond the term. And because their power within the term is to really touch any part of this, any part of this judgment, then that power extends into however long it takes to dispose of this motion like Dos Santos authorizes. So here, the court reversed. What the trial court did was the trial court denied the um, motion to withdraw the plea and did not rule on the Brady claim. And the Court of Appeals held that was right. Uh, Supreme Court granted cert and said, uh, no, that's wrong, and then remanded the case back to the Court of Appeals to to decide if the if the motion was properly decided and whatever other issues. What do we learn from Flanders versus the state? Look, if you file a placeholder motion, you can amend it later beyond the term and you can add you can add to what you were arguing in it and the court still has the power to entertain whatever grounds um, whatever grounds you're alleging in the motion. All right, so that was Flanders versus state Supreme Court case. Our next case is Knuckles versus the state. It's S20G0492, decided December 21st, 2020. And this is a really interesting case, a really interesting fact pattern. And the issue here is the Georgia's video recording statute um, and whether a, a video is admissible or not under OCGA 161167. This will make sense in a second. So this case is about 89-year-old Mr. Dempsey. And so Mr. Dempsey had a hip surgery, and he was transferred from the hospital to the North Atlanta Rehabilitation Center. 
And during his stay, he was moved to the part of the hospital that was designated for dementia patients. And his son, uh, Timothy, noted that his father seemed out of it. And a doctor determined that Mr. Dempsey was dehydrated and he was transferred back to the hospital. Brought back to the rehab center later, he was placed in the dementia unit again. And Tim, the son, hired a caretaker to stay with Dempsey during the day. So Dempsey tells Tim, hey, look, strange things are happening at night, including a resident trying to get into bed with me, a male resident coming into my room naked, things are going missing, and I'm receiving poor care. So Tim gets worried, and he installs a secret camera, a camera that was concealed into a like a, a little square alarm clock, and it records 24-7 in five-minute increments onto a memory card. And so only the people in Tim's kind of inner circle know that this camera is there. Him, his dad, obviously, the, the private caretaker they hired, and then Tim's family, his wife and his stepdaughter knew the camera was there. Anyway, so Tim's dad dies. Tim asks for an autopsy because his dad seemed to be doing well the night before. And it turns out that Mr. Dempsey was receiving poor care, and Wanda Knuckles was charged with depriving him of essential services and concealing his death. And prior to trial, she files a motion to exclude the video taken on the concealed camera, um, saying that, arguing that the recording was inadmissible under 16. 1167 because she did not consent to its recording as required under 161162 subsection 2. And she said, here's what she argued. She said, hey, look, under this statute, it's unlawful for any person through the use of any device without the consent of all persons involved to observe, photograph, or record the activities of another which occur in any private place and out of public view. So, of course, if you are recording someone in public view, fair game. If you're recording someone in private, in a, in a private place, they have to know about it. There's a different, there's an exception for the owner or occupier of the property. And she argued, hey, look, this is not the same. This does not fit into this owner or occupier exception. The owner or occupier exception is when, if you set up security cameras in your own house, then you don't, if a guest comes over, you don't have to tell them, hey, man, by the way, I have a nanny cam over in this in this teddy bear, and so I'm just letting you know I'm recording you because it's your own house, and you're permitted to record your own house for security and that kind of thing. And But Knuckles said, uh, the defendant, Wanda Knuckles, said, hey, look, Dempsey, the dad, was not an owner or occupier of real property, and the recording took place in a patient's room where there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. And because Dempsey did not have control over the rehab facility, he was not an owner or an occupier. And because you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the room, the security exception doesn't apply. Well, they lost that one. The, um, the Court of Appeals and, and then the Supreme Court affirmed, but they both decided that, look, Dempsey was an owner or occupier of real property because his room 
in the facility is considered real property because it's a building affixed to realty. And they look to Black's Law Dictionary to determine what does real property mean. And an occupier is just someone who occupies real property. And so they said, look, the defendant, Knuckles, the defendant's proposed definition, which requires possession or control, is too narrow. And the definition of occupier includes someone who has the legal right to occupy or reside in an area captured in, in video recordings. The, they say, look, he lived there. His family paid the facility for him to live there, and he kept all his things there. And so he was occupying that patient room even though he did not own the patient room. So now turning to – so they say, yep, he's an owner-occupier of real property. Is there a reasonable expectation of privacy in that room or does the security exception apply? And Supreme Court said, look, we have not addressed what a reasonable expectation of privacy means in this statute. But that's a phrase that's uh, a very recognizable under Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. And so they look to they looked to uh, a Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in the context of the security exception. And they said, look, the reasonable expectation of privacy under the security exception must be considered in light of the individual expectations of the persons in the area where the video recording occurred and not uh, solely based on the classification of that area. And this phrase, reasonable expectation of privacy in this statute, is like the Fourth Amendment where the courts take an individualized approach to what the expectation of privacy is at the time. And so they're going to look at an individual status in relation to the location and not just classifying locations as, yep, that's a private location, that one isn't, that kind of thing. And other factors could be involved, like the conduct occurring at the time, other people present at the time of the recording, and that kind of thing. And so they decided, look, she did not have a reasonable expect the defendant did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in this patient room because expectations of privacy are generally limited areas where you have exclusive control. So, like, for example, the, an employee's desk and file cabinet that's used exclusively by an employee, where the employee kept personal items, would be a place where you'd reasonably expect privacy. But, you know, the, the top of your desk, you wouldn't. Or company files, you wouldn't. And um, here, she did not have control over the room. She did not use it for personal reasons or store items there. She didn't sleep there or change there. She could have been subject to evaluations there. The, there are multiple employees who come in and out. And, and so the state was able to show that Knuckles, the defendant, had no reasonable expectation of privacy in the area captured on the video recording at the time she was recorded. Thus, this video was admissible. What do we learn from this one? This provides a, a direction for the phrase reasonable expectation of privacy and a lot of cases to analogize that to when we're considering whether recordings are admissible under 1611.67. Look to Fourth Amendment jurisprudence and uh, make your arguments there. All right. That was Knuckles versus the state. Our next case is Gu Guzman. Perez versus the state, Supreme Court criminal case, S20A 1102, decided December 21st, 2020. 
And this is a murdered spouse case. The victim, Rodriguez, was murdered. And prior to her death, her husband, Perez, complained to his co-workers about a lack of intimacy. And Rodriguez, the one night, the date's not really important, Rodriguez came home from work with her neighbor, Ruiz, and Ruiz heard no strange noises that night. That's important for a reason in a second. The next morning, Perez, the defendant, asked Ruiz, the neighbor, if he had seen Rodriguez, the wife, and remarked that she may have left with another man. And then, uh, four days later, Perez, the defendant, took his and the victim's children to church without their mother. Pastor asked where she was. Defendant Perez said, she's left. He doesn't know where she is. The next day, the pastor... Victim's sisters, children, everyone, they, they all tell the defendant, hey, man, you got to call the police. But instead, he led everyone on an unsuccessful search. After they didn't find her, he called the police and told them that she left after an argument. Police came, but they didn't find anything unusual in the apartment. A couple days later, Perez, the defendant's boss, noticed a pungent smell coming from an orange garbage bag behind the express oil change where they worked. Called police. Victim's body was in the bag. Autopsy revealed that the victim had a single blunt force injury to the neck, which was insufficient to cause her death. But because of decomposition, the medical examiner couldn't determine the cause of death with certainty, but decided that it was a homicide. Upon a second search of the couple's apartment, Police found orange trash bags that matched the bag the victim was found in, and they found blood stains in Perez, the defendant's car, that matched the victim's blood. And so then Perez talked to the police. He said that the victim left after an argument, but then when the police showed him the bags and the blood stain evidence, he began to cry, and he told them that he chased the victim as she left and that she fell down the stairs, and he could not find a pulse. And so he wrapped her up and left her at the express oil change in fear that the police would not believe his story. I went to a jury trial, was found guilty, convicted of malice murder, and concealing the death of another. The first claim that he raises on appeal is that the evidence was insufficient to support his murder conviction. And so this is another insufficiency of evidence ground, just like our prior case, but here it does not win the day. And the reason why is that based on the evidence presented, the jury was authorized to find Perez guilty. And the reason why is whether the evidence excludes every other reasonable hypothesis is obviously a question for the fact finder. And there was a lot of evidence to show that he did it. He complained about their intimacy shortly before she died. He lied to the police and family and friends and his pastor while going to great lengths to conceal her death. And then there was evidence, the bag and the bloodstains that connected her death to him. And he denied involvement until he was faced with the evidence and then changed his story, although didn't completely admit that he did it. And there was no evidence to support this other reasonable hypothesis that she fell down the stairs, his second story, that he, she fell down the stairs because the neighbor didn't hear anything. Ruiz 
said he didn't hear anything that night after he came back with, he walked back from work with the wife. And the jury's not required to find the the defendant's story, the defendant's alternative um, explanation, reasonable hypothesis of guilt. They're not required to find it a reasonable one. And if it's not reasonable, then the state doesn't have to exclude it. So although there is another hypothesis, it's not reasonable, and there's a lot of evidence showing that he did do it, and so there was sufficient evidence for the jury to find him guilty. A second claim, ineffective assistance of counsel claim, deficient performance that is prejudicial. And here, defendant argued that trial counsel, he complained that trial counsel decided not to hire an expert in forensic pathology. And that was not a reasonable trial strategy. And it it was it it ended up hurting him because he got convicted. And so here, you know, this is a real common situation where the state brings in an expert and here the medical examiner and the expert says some things, um, but there's a lot to work with on cross-examination. So here, remember that the medical examiner said that the, because of the body's decomposition, the medical examiner couldn't testify as to the cause of death, decided it, it was a, a homicide, but there was stuff to work with. The, the appellate counsel at the motion for new trial presented an expert who said, who would have testified that the victim could have died by falling down the stairs and that he would have listed the cause of death as undetermined instead of a homicide. Is that enough to say, look, it, it's unreasonable to not hire your own expert. Supreme Court says, no, it's a reasonable strategy to try to get everything you can out of cross, crossing the other side's expert, a very common thing that happens in criminal cases. And because it was a reasonable strategy, there's no deficiency and then obviously no prejudice. Can you rely on that in, in every case when you're doing it? It's hard to know. This is a real fact-specific analysis. But, but you know, I think it, it's a common question that trial lawyers have to face, and it's a very real strategic decision that trial attorneys have to make, where they say, hey, are we going to spend time, resources, that kind of thing, in getting our own expert who is not going to present a full-throated defense of the defendant, but merely give us some stuff that we can work with? Or are we going to just try to poke holes in the state's expert and get what we need from them. Tough decisions, you know, case by case analysis. But here, Supreme Court found it was fine and the conviction was affirmed. That was Guzman Perez versus the state. Our next case is a consolidated murder case Martin versus the state, which is S20A 1134. Bird versus the state, which is S20A 1135, both, of course, in the Supreme Court because they're murder cases, and decided December 21st, 2020. And here are essentially the facts of the case. Three guys were hanging out in this guy's yard, and they wanted weed, but they didn't have any money to buy it. And so they thought, all right, let's rob someone to get some money to go buy the weed. And Ebony Young heard this planning and then left. She showed up at trial and testified about it. 
the three guys decide, hey, well, let's call this drug dealer to, to come meet us. And the dealer did, and he brought his young son. And what they did was they planned to steal the weed and the money by approaching the dealer with a gun. And one of them would take the weed and the other two would split any money. And so here's what happened when the drug dealer pulled up. And this was witnessed by an intellectually disabled man, the opinion says, who also overheard the plan and then saw this. He saw the drug dealer pull up. Two of the guys approach from the rear of the car. One of them pointed uh, the gun at the drug dealer's head, and then they started fighting. In the tussle, one of the defendants shot the drug dealer in the chest, and the bullet went through him and then into his young son's leg, who was sitting in the car. And then the drug dealer jumped back into the car, drove across the street, and then died. And the, um, the intellectually disabled man who, who witnessed this described what he saw the police, and then they recovered uh, the bullet matching the gun. And so they all go to trial, get convicted of malice murder for the drug dealer, aggravated assault for the bullet entering the young son's, um, entering the young son. And one of the defendants, so there were three, two of them go to trial, Martin and Bird. The third agrees to plea out to voluntary manslaughter in exchange for testifying against his co-defendants. And so here are the errors they raise. And, and what's really, I think what's really great about this case is that this is a real kind of standard menu of appellate issues that are raised in cases like this. But it's also hard because you got a lot of evidence against you. You have, you know, the people who are unrelated to the crime testifying against you, and you have a co-conspirator testifying against you. And so the, the errors that you have to raise in that kind of situation have to be so good to, to reverse a, a conviction. So let's get into these kind of errors that, that we see a lot in these kind of drug deal gone bad cases or, or other kind of murder cases. Um, so first... They argued the evidence was insufficient to convict because it wasn't sufficiently corroborated and that the child shooting was an unforeseen collateral consequence. And Supreme Court decided, nope, there was plenty of evidence to corroborate the co-defendant's testimony, including these other unrelated people, the girl who heard the planning um, ahead of time and then left, and then the man who heard the planning and then also saw it happen. Both of those corroborate what happened. And in the context of accomplice corroboration, so there's a rule that says, look, you can't be convicted solely on accomplice testimony, that the accomplice testimony has to be corroborated in some way. But this corroborating evidence can be circumstantial. It can be slight. And it of itself does not need to be sufficient to warrant a conviction of the crime charged. But it has to be independent of the accomplice testimony, and it has to directly connect the defendant with the crime or lead to the inference that he's guilty. So, for example, if the you know if the corroborating testimony was the co-defendant says it was raining, and then they bring someone in to say, oh yeah, it was raining that day, obviously that's not sufficient. But here, when there's other people testifying about hearing the planning, testifying about seeing it, there you go. 
And this, the other, the other argument that the shooting the sun was an unforeseeable consequence. The problem is when you enter a conspiracy, everyone's responsible for the acts of everyone, everyone else that are committed in furtherance of the conspiracy. And even if, even if the guy, the defendant with the gun did not have the specific intent that the sun be shot, he was committing a dangerous crime. And so by their attendant circumstances, they created a foreseeable risk of death. And because it's not unforeseeable that someone would get shot, a bystander would get shot in the commission of this kind of armed robbery, it was not an unforeseeable consequence. And so the evidence was sufficient um, to convict based on the to convict for the aggravated assault on the son. All right, running into our second claim. Both defendants argued that the trial court erred by denying a motion for mistrial after the state failed to properly redact a portion of the flipped co-defendant's recorded statement. And the what it was, it was a small bit of speculation that was played for the jury. The state recognized its mistake and they asked the trial court to issue curative instruction and the trial court did. And trial court told the jury not to consider the statement, but refused to grant a mistrial. The problem is, in these kinds of, of mistrial errors, it's so hard to get the first. It's an abuse of discretion standard of review. So it's so hard to get the appellate court to say a trial court abused its discretion by not granting a mistrial, especially when the trial court issues a curative, you know, issues a curative instruction. The, the error that, you know, the, whatever the error is that would cause the mistrial that the, the trial court issues a curative instruction about, it has to be so central to the guilt and to the material issues in the case, guilt or innocence. And it has to be, um, it just has to be so such a straight line towards making the trial unfair that you're able to connect it in such a clear way um, that the court would be very constrained to say, oh yeah, it's still a fair trial. This maybe this could have gone the other way if it was if it was if you know the testimony that was supposed to be that the jury wasn't supposed to hear but then did, you know, if that testimony was much more central to to the issues in the case, if there wasn't this kind of I don't know if it's overwhelming evidence, but a lot of evidence against uh, the defendants. But it's just so hard here to say, all right, with a little bit of speculation is what moved the jury from not guilty to guilty. And so this kind of claim fails. They next argued a inadmissible hearsay, inadmissible hearsay issue where they said, hey, two of the co-defendants, the one who flipped and, and one of them who didn't, had a conversation about a drug transaction with that drug dealer, the one who died a few days before, and the defendants argued that this could cause the jury to infer that the guy who flipped was actually the mastermind. And the two people who didn't, I don't know, were merely henchmen or something like that. But here, this is where the wheels fell off on this issue. The defendant, the appellant, made no proffer as to what this testimony would have been. And so he did not provide the necessary component for the court to consider the claim. This kind of thing happens all the time. And it's something that us criminal defense, criminal appellate lawyers are, are 
constantly thinking about. What do I need to introduce at the amended motion for new trial that is not in the record that uh, that that is that I'm going to have to rely on to support my claim? And so here, what they should have done was get this other person, this person who would have testified about the conversation, and brought that person in and said, "Okay, what would tell us about the conversation?" You know. And, and what would you have testified to at trial? And then you're able to, then the court can actually dig in and say, okay, was this an abuse of discretion to not let this hearsay in? Is it prejudicial? You know, they can actually engage in an, in an analysis like this. But here they, they just weren't able to do it, and, and the appellants lost on that issue. Last claim in this case, another ineffective assistance of counsel, that old chestnut and here they they argued that trial counsel is ineffective for failing to impeach one of the witnesses with prior convictions, uh, the intellectually disabled man, that they failed to impeach him with some pending misdemeanor charges that were resolved prior to the trial. And here the problem is that there was no evidence that the two were related. There's no evidence that there was some deal saying, hey, if you testify in this murder case, then you'll get your misdemeanor charges dismissed. Obviously, that would be, you know, that'd be Brady material. Obviously, that would be relevant to witness bias, but but it just wasn't there. They also claimed that um, there was an error in um, the prosecutor um, talking about the law to the jury, but stating a principle of law is not error unless it's argumentative or opinionated. Um, or wrong, I would assume. And here, that just wasn't it. The state also introduced a photo of the drug dealer's son, the drug dealer holding his son, and talked about their relationship. And the appellants argued, hey, our lawyers should have objected to that as substantially more prejudicial and probative. That failed. And the, the Gibson made some inconsistent statements in the case. And they said, hey, why didn't our trial lawyers jump all over him? And their trial counsel testified, well, hey, it was a strategic decision. I didn't want to do it because I didn't think there was anything to be gained by beating up on a sad witness. And I think this is an important part in thinking about ineffective assistance of counsel claims and looking at reasonable strategic decisions. And you know, there are a lot of times where you just have to feel it out and see what's going on in the room. And you just feel out the jury and say, hey, if I go hard on this witness, do I have permission from the jury to do that yet? Or if I go hard on this witness in cross-examination, will the jury dislike me for it? Will they hold it against me? Will they start hating me? Or might it increase the credibility of this witness if it looks like I'm trying to get him to say stuff that he doesn't want to say and and in, in a kind of bad lawyerly way? And so these are exactly how to approach the cross-examination of a witness, particularly over issues that are not necessarily central. If, if you fail to cross-examine the, you know, the lead detective on issues that are directly related to reasonable doubt, then yeah, that's going to be ineffective. But the manner in which you do it, and for other witnesses, peripheral matters, if you raise them or not, and the manner in which you do it, it's tough to say that any of that stuff's going to be ineffective, especially because it relies, it really is a core 
trial strategy decision. Murder convictions were upheld. These were Martin versus State and Bird versus State. Our next case is a Supreme Court criminal case, Thomas versus the State, S20A1187, also decided December 21st, 2020. And this is about Thomas's bad night at the Just One More Club. And Thomas had an ankle monitor on, and he left home at 11.15 p.m., came back at 1.26 a.m., and he was seen at the Just One More Club during that time. His brothers and his cousin were at the club, and a fight breaks out at the club. Everyone hears gunshots. Two people are shot, and these two witnesses testify that Thomas was the shooter, testify at trial. They also have a uh, security records of a man pistol whipping another man and then firing the gun. And these two witnesses watch the footage and identify Thomas as the shooter. The Thomas's friend heard him say uh, they got what they deserved. And when Thomas was in jail, Thomas is the defendant. When Thomas was in jail, he his cellmate wrote letters to the prosecutor saying, hey, Thomas admitted that he shot these two guys, told him there was a video that showed Thomas running away but didn't show his face, and Thomas told him, no face, no case, which if you are on TikTok like I am, you'll get a real kick out of the no face, no case bit. So he goes to trial, gets convicted of malice murder, appeals to the Supreme Court. First claim, insufficient evidence to sustain convictions. It does not work. He argued that the evidence was vague and ambiguous and conflicting at best and was un, uh, was insufficient but for the confession and the pretrial identifications that he says were, were improperly admitted. But, and here's something that, a, a point of law that, that you don't see talked about too often in, in cases because the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals usually glosses over it. But when they're reviewing for sufficiency, they, re, they consider all the evidence whether it's admissible or not. And so they may be considering sufficiency on evidence that the jury may not even get to hear or maybe shouldn't have heard, but could still establish that the evidence was sufficient to convict. Here it was, and so no dice for Thomas on this one. Uh, second claim is that the trial court erred in denying a motion for a mistrial, admitting uh, the cellmate's evidence of a confession and admitting uh, the pretrial identification evidence. So it was a swing and a miss on the mistrial, and here's why. When you, and this is a, a real practice point for all trial counsel, when you want to raise an issue on appeal, it has to be properly preserved. And in order to properly object to evidence or properly make a motion for mistrial, you have to make it as soon as you're aware of the matter giving rise to the motion. It's the same as objecting to evidence, right? It has to be done contemporaneously or else the objection's waived. Same with the mistrial. You have to make that mistrial motion contemporaneous with discovering the issue, otherwise you waive it. Here, it was some issue where there was a courtroom spectator testified, but she was like going in and out of the room where the witnesses were sequestered for some reason. And the, the, the state, when she was on the stand, the state 
examined her about this. And she said, oh, yeah, I was going in and out of the room between the witnesses, but I didn't tell the sequestered witnesses what anyone else said. And the defense probably could have moved for a mistrial then that say, hey, here's a witness who violated the rule and should not be, you know, and move to exclude and um, and see how that went. Or if, if she's already testifying about stuff and then you realize it, then you can move for a mistrial. But here, trial counsel waited until the end of the examination and then moved for a mistrial. And that's too late. And so a Supreme Court found the issue is waived on appeal. Um, the confession evidence, a jailhouse cellmate, jailhouse snitch kind of deal, they wanted it excluded because jailhouse informants are um, unreliable at best and have a significant bias to testify against their cellmates in exchange for favorable treatment in their own cases. Court said, look, it comes in. That goes to weight, not admissibility. And so jury can hear it and take it for however much it's worth. The the third issue, the pretrial lineups, defense wanted to argue that they were impermissibly sub- suggestive, but they couldn't show it. I mean, the lineups were people of the same race and sex as the suspect, having the same characteristics. A, diff- a, a different officer showed the lineup to witness it, like an officer different than the one who actually made the lineup showed the lineup. And so that second officer was not aware if the suspect was in the lineup or not to to avoid even unconsciously um, suggesting which one the witnesses should choose. The six photos were similar. At least one of the other photos had lighting similar to the defendant's photo. And so generally it was fine. And the the bar to argue that a lineup is impermissibly suggestive is high. It's got to be the equivalent of the the cop saying, hey, this is our suspect. And here, lineup seemed okay. Supreme Court was okay with it. Did not bite on that issue. And so the murder conviction was affirmed. All right. that. Our next case is Knighton versus the state Supreme Court criminal case, S20A, 1195 decided on December 21st, 2020. This is a talking shit on text and getting knifed case. Here, these uh, two boys got into a text fight and they were texting stuff back and forth. And then they decided, hey, we should fist fight. And one of them, Knighton, texted the other one. Knighton, the defendant, texted the other one, Harris, and said, hey, Harris, leave the pocket knife at home. If you try something funny, I'll try something funny. I just want a fist fight, essentially. And so they all show up and they start fist fighting. But what do you know? Harris brought his knife. And so they start fighting. Harris pulls out his pocket knife. Mosley and another person try to take it. Knighton ends up getting the knife and he stabs and kills Harris. And so goes to trial, charged with murder, goes to trial, gets found guilty. And here... The all the issues surround um, some, you know, funny business. I don't know if that's too disrespectful to the trial judge, but I guess the, the trial judge interjecting during the during the defendant's closing argument. And first, the the, the trial court essentially is jumping in, 
when they say the defense counsel is incorrectly stating the law. And the, the first time um, the defense counsel in, in closing argument says, hey, the state has to prove that the defendant brought the knife to the fight and it was his knife, which obviously which is not true. And the trial judge interrupted and said, hey, that's not true, called a bench conference and then told the jury to decide based on at the moment of the stabbing, the issue is formed, who did the stabbing? Secondly, was it justified who did the stabbing under the laws of self-defense? The defense, I should have told you this earlier, the defense was self-defense. And so later, defense counsel said the case turns on how Knighton, the defendant, got the knife. And then the trial judge jumped in again and said, it doesn't matter how he got the knife. It's when the stabbing occurred. Was the defendant justified in using self-defense as the defense? You said... It's how he got the knife. It's not how he got the knife. Am I? Is everybody clear on that? And here's the problem. The first instruction was an error because defense counsel was wrong in stating the law. The state does not have to prove that Knighton brought the knife to disprove self-defense. The, you know, the, there's no requirement that the state prove its case with any sort of particular evidence. All they have to do is disprove the defendant's claim of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that first that first closing argument comment is, is you know, the Supreme Court thought it was fine and, and it probably is fine. The second one, the Supreme Court had a tougher question, a tougher problem with. And the Supreme Court called it inartful. But they said, look, um, he probably was not um, talking about talking about this evidence, it was an inartful way to repeat what he was saying in the first instruction, but just chose the wrong words. And then, of course, during the during the final jury instructions, the judge accurately stated the law and told the jurors to consider all of the circumstances. And the in what they held was in context, the instruction did not create a clear and obvious error beyond reasonable dispute with respect to the jury's understanding that it was to consider all of the evidence. And they said, slip of the tongue is not plain error. Oh, by the way, this is plain error because trial counsel did not object to it at the time. And so the it's not how he got the knife is the problem. And would this have come out differently had trial counsel objected at the time? Hard to know. I, you know they raised an ineffective assistance argument for failing to object to this stuff. And the, the Supreme Court didn't go for that. By the way, the, the other claim was that the, the defendant was deprived of a closing argument because it was interrupted. But trial courts have the discretion to determine the range of proper closing argument. And so that didn't fly. Um, you know, this one, it's hard to know. Would this have been different had trial counsel objected at the time? I want to say no. I think the practice point from this one is if, one, you got to know the law and you can't get off off track in your closing arguments. And, and I, I know it's hard because you, know, you put gas in the tank and, and you get up to speed and then you're just chugging along and then you know, you're really grooving on something and words are coming out of your mouth. And it's like that scene in old school where you come to and you're like, what, you know, I, I don't even really know what I just said. And it can, it can be tough. 
Um, if you truly do misstate the law, then yeah, the trial court can jump in and, and correct it. I, th- I think if this happens, then the kind of stuff you can do is you can request a curative instruction. And by this, I mean, if the court jumps in and seems to decide an issue in the case or exclude some issue or piece of evidence from the jury's consideration, probably inadvertently, like here, the best best thing to do, I guess, ask the trial court for a curative instruction. When you come back out, you know, when you start talking to the jury again, maybe ask the judge for permission to read that portion of the jury instruction to them and be able to talk about it, that kind of thing. I think you could. There are probably things that you can do at the time that a trial court would allow you to do, especially if they realize that they just stepped in it. But like for this case, it's. I think it's going to be hard to translate that into a good appealable issue. All right, this one was Knighton versus the state. All right, everyone, we're at a little bit over an hour, and we took on in in, in this initial episode. I think my eyes were a bit bigger than my mouth. And we included a bunch of Supreme Court cases from late December 2020, so not, you know, technically not last week. And that's really punching out the time. And so we've got, let's see, one, two, three, four. We got four more crim cases, and we have a couple personal injury cases concerning attorney's fees, which the is that the most important part of a personal injury case? Maybe. And so what we're going to do is end this episode here and then publish a second episode at the same time that talks about these other cases so that you don't have me on for more than an hour at a time and you can break this up. Anyway, I I appreciate everyone listening. I I really hope this is helpful and helps you stay up on the the cutting edge of case law. The you know, I I know when I was a young lawyer, I was reading it all the time. And then I kind of got out of practice as as I got further into my career and got busier and had kids and that kind of thing. And so hopefully this makes it a bit easier to absorb this stuff as it comes out. And if it's in a podcast, then you can listen to my gentle voice as you're exercising or cleaning or driving or doing whatever. Anyway, we're going to put these out every week. So please subscribe and, and you can stay up to date on um, all of the criminal defense cases, all of the personal injury cases that the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court decides. And we're just going to cover them week by week and uh, have fun doing it. So thank you for listening. Please subscribe. Please give me a rating, five stars if you like it. If you don't like it, then do not leave me a rating, but you have my permission to send me a mean email or a mean tweet. And you can say whatever mean things you want, but just don't ruin my five-star rating. All right. Thanks, everyone. And uh, I'll see you in this uh, next episode and, uh, and then every week after that. All right. Talk to you soon.